What's happening, everybody? Welcome to the 16th episode of the Carbide Podcast with Jim Dimmerman. For a lot of snowmobile racers growing up, being crowned champion at Eagle River is and was a career goal, one that only few have ever achieved. For Jim, this was no different. In an era where the race was really between the factory teams, Jim's win in 84 aboard a privately funded race led continues to be talked about to this day, and in a lot of ways is what he's best known for. Jim loves to talk sleds, and he's got an incredible memory for even the most minute details. So it was a blast going down memory lane with him and learning all about his life of snowmobiles. I hope you enjoy our discussion. And welcome back, everybody, to the Carbide Podcast. Appreciate everybody tuning in once again. On the line tonight, legendary ice oval racer for Team Arctic and Nielsen Enterprises, He's an Eagle River world champion, holds numerous NSSR speed run records for snowmobiles. He's also an inductee into the Snowmobile Hall of Fame, Mr. Jim Dimmerman. How are we doing, Jim? Wow, Spencer, that's quite an intro. <laughs> you sure we're talking about the same guy here? <laughs> I um, hope so. No, I'm doing real good. Thank you, and thank you for having me on your show. So. For sure, for sure. I think it's uh, you got quite the story and quite the history in snowmobile racing, so I think it's going to be fun to chat about it tonight. I'll tell you what I know. <laughs> awesome. So we might test your memory a little bit on some of this stuff, Jim. We're going to have to go into the Wayback Machine, but what's the earliest memory of snowmobiles for you? Where did this whole thing start for you? As a kid, a uh, neighbor kid had a 67 Evan Rude that his dad got for him, and he came and you know, school buddies and took me for a ride, started the, the snowmobile thing in my mind and bought a 68 Skidoo 10 horse for myself. And we rode together for a couple of years. And by 69, of course, snowmobiling was become a, a big recreational sport. They were, mm -hmm. they were everywhere. All your friends were starting to buy them for sure. Their parents had them and and, uh, you know, you, people were going riding up and down the streets and in and around golf courses and making a mess of everything. But but nonetheless, uh, it was full go at that point. And I think in the early 70s, the talk of the town was all about snowmobiling. Yeah, I was going to ask about that because you kind of talked to some of these guys that got started in riding late 60s, early 70s. Some of them got into it basically as it was becoming a recreational activity. Some guys got into it when it was still just a tool, like your local lawn and garden store was selling them and that's how they viewed it. But it definitely sounds like for you, once you got into it, it was already, it was already fun. It was already like a sport. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. We were, you know, we were riding around on the lakes. The trail systems were just getting more and more, um, uh, I don't want to say advanced, uh, um, evolving and, and snowmobile clubs were popping up right and left and hundreds and hundreds of people belonged to this and uh, snowmobiling was like i say it, it was going it was the thing to do in the winter time sure skiing was part of it but if you wanted to do something with a motor uh it, it was all snowmobiles so you mentioned you were kind of riding with some of your friends get a get a bunch of teenage boys together on snowmobiles i'd imagine racing started pretty quickly for you then well, one of my, another one of my school friends uh, bought a uh, 1970 Rupp 440, mm -hmm. and he was a bigger guy. Uh, there was a local lake that's not too far uh, in uh, 
uh, on the east side of town. Uh, it's called uh, Island Lake. And they had a drag race there. So he asked me, I was little or much, much, you know, less lighter than him. And asked me if I wanted to drag race it that day on Sunday afternoon. You can see this lake when you drive by uh, uh, 694. Uh, you know, I still look over at it every once in a while. But anyhow, I, I raced this thing uh, on the drag race against all these other, you know, regular snowmobiles. And I won my class of it all. So so I was kind of hooked at the get-go. I, I, you know, I got to drive somebody else's sled that had a fast one. And, and I won my first race. So. That led us to Heydays, and, and in the early days of Heydays, Snow Barons was actually out on Highway 65, um, okay. a place called uh, Wyatt Danka Sports Center, and and Wyatt's had a great big field. Um, you probably maybe have seen pictures of it, but if you go out 65 and look on the right-hand side, uh, now it's all built up, but but there was uh, literally cornfields out there, and he'd, he'd mow those down, and they would have grass drags or or corn cob drags uh, right there on there. And I also raced over there and won that race. So that pretty much hooked me. That was my first intro into seeing factory drivers. The uh, Polaris racing at that time uh, brought all their 70 uh, Polaris TXs all on methanol, Leroy Lindblad mm-hmm. and uh, I suspect Ruglin and and uh, Burnett were in that group as well, but Brugman stuck out, or excuse me, uh, Lindblad stuck out because I was watching him working on his machine and stuff. But that's where it all really culminated. The the, the heydays part of it was a, a real race, and and not just out on a little lake with a bunch of you know, you know kind of a free for all. But mm-hmm. the uh, heydays was good, and and I saw what gave me a clamoring to want to have more uh, in the modified side of it all. That didn't come for several years later, but but it gave me a beginning. So you mentioned kind of getting your first exposure to the more factory supported side of, of racing. I'm curious, was it seen at this point yet as snowmobiling is never really a career, but at least maybe in the wintertime, it can be a career at this point were guys actually doing it full time as a career in the wintertime, or was it still just kind of like a hobby and they were making a little bit of money, but it wasn't really much yet. Well, for sure, for me, it didn't start. I, I actually went to work for a couple of different dealerships. I'll get to that part in a minute. Um, from 75 on, I quit my job and went into snowmobile racing full time. But okay. uh, back to the 70 part of it, most of the people that were racing those at that time were dealers, um, you know, and, and there were Rupp and Scorpion and, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, Grand Prix uh, Botels. I mean, every kind of brand you could imagine. So there mm-hmm. was dealers and, and megaphones and stuff sticking out of the sides of hoods on any kind of machine that could be had. Um, mm-hmm. So... So most of the organized, or I shouldn't say organized, but most of the other upper level stuff, there were some distributor teams forming. Larson Olson was the, the Polaris distributor. Um, Arctic Midwest, which was actually not far from where I live now in White Bear Lake. Um, mm-hmm. Their distributorship uh, was here. Um, I'm thinking of you know, Yamaha. I don't think Yamaha and Skidoo was in Halverson and Duluth. But uh, so they had their distributor teams were were semi factory. They were supported by the companies with product and knowledge, 
but the, you know, the Burnett's and the Eastman's and, and the Duhamel's and all them guys, they would come down, Larry Colton and Thompson, they would travel to some of these. Heydays was big enough back then that they would be there, but they kind of cherry picked around even in Canada to, uh, to do the best advertising for the companies mm-hmm. in the summertime. This is all grass dragging. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so at that point, you know, the, the aspiring guy and the, certainly I was a young kid at that point. Um, I didn't have any aspirations to be one of them yet that mm-hmm. they were, they, they were just people from factory and, and, and uh, way, way, way beyond anything that I knew about snowmobiling. Um, as it kind of matured, the dealer, I started with a Polaris dealership in White Bear Lake working for him. And he was a cross country racer and, uh, and an oval racer. He took me to uh, Stanky Cedar Speedway, which is in, you know, just uh, north of uh, uh, Anoka area on a Wednesday night and, and uh, let me drive one of his snowmobiles. And then I bought it. It was a 70 Polaris TX racer, one of the aluminum chassis ones. And so he hooked me on the oval thing. I guess I'm, I'm kind of fast forwarding and going from one to the next, but, um, but that dealership got me into it. Um, for sure that once I went oval racing, then I knew that I was wanted to do this, you know, every week we had show bills. I call them, uh, in every snowmobile dealership or gas station, they were hanging on the walls, taped on the walls, you know, go here, go there. Uh, there mm-hmm. were minimum of 10 snowmobile races, in minnesota or wisconsin uh at any given weekend uh and and uh some of them were drag some were speed not speed runs but uh, uh oval racing um shatek mm-hmm. uh, uh 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 you know i'm trying to think of some of the um the the local names uh rum river uh, uh but but anyhow there was a number of different places you could go racing so um once that started then then i started taking it more seriously and uh, by 1974 i was working for towsley sports center in white bear okay yep and larry cook is a icon name in the sport and been around and huge snowmobile guy and did a lot of things for the sport um larry and i got along real well uh, a biomedical engineer for medtronic came in the store once day and said um, I want to buy one of these race sleds and I want to, I want to, are you interested in driving it? I know you're a good mechanic here at the store. Would you, would you be wrenching it in uh, a 295 LT grade? And I, well, well, yeah, hell yeah. So, <laughs> so I really didn't know that much about it. I had done my Polaris, but uh, I was learning as I was going and, and uh, went to Eagle River with it and met, um, Jim Musselman from Woody's and he handed me a, a bag full of studs and star studs and some carbides to put on my skis. Didn't even sharpen them. Didn't know at the time that 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 was the next <laughs> level of it all. But, uh, you know, I'm seeing people from Makuni and oil companies and and on and on. And now, of course, I'm seeing the superstars of the sport, the the Eastman's and uh, Lindblad's and, and all of these, are, you know, Colton's are, they're racing there. So now I was at a level where um, there was no return. I To go mm-hmm. back to the local uh, gas station show bill and, and race, I 
it was going to be only moving. I was looking for USSA or and or uh, ASA running into guys like Franny Rosenquist and Donahue and uh, Benders, uh, you know, the the Deckers, of course. I, I could go on and on with names, but those that was the group of people that were all running these um, what I'll call uh, more intermediate or high level uh, oval racing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's how that nurtured. Gotcha. Gotcha. So when you first kind of showed up to that race, then, I mean, you had your own local racing success. I'm sure you were confident enough in your own skills, but were you kind of, were you nervous? Like the first time you got on a track with these, with these top dogs or were you, were you confident enough that you could, that you could handle it? Well, you know, I mean, I sure I'm, you know, I'm trying to think to, to, you know, nervous of it all. I don't think I ever stopped being nervous. You know, mm-hmm. when I would go out on the track, when I knew I had the fastest sled there, I still was nervous driving over to the, to the uh, starting line. You know, you, you, you don't tend to build that confidence right until the, the flagman's got the tip of the flag pointed down on the ice and you're locked up and revs are up and everything is ready. And, that then all of a sudden the world shuts off up until that point mm-hmm. you know you're you know who who uh, elsner's in my heat or or uh you know Hewling's just uh set fast time so you got all this crap in your mind but uh so so yeah i mean i, I and i think that's the thrill of it i think that's what what always gave me the you know coming out onto the track from wherever the entrance was onto the ice um was just a uh like somebody pulling a shade, you know, it's like, all right, this is, this is what it's all about. That's why you came now mm-hmm. knowing enough about the machine and, and wondering if you had the right setup and the jetting and the clutch and, you know, that's another whole facet to the whole thing, driving and feeling like you're, you're as good or better as a driver as anybody that may be easier to come to, to, uh, to terms in your mind than it is, how well do you actually have it set up? Because uh, uh, you're, you know, the driver is going to be a big part of it, but but it's got to handle and be fast, and and of course that's what separates the rest of us. So. Yeah, I was going to kind of ask about that because there's a lot of guys in all forms of motorsports or even all sports in general that are just naturally talented. They can just figure out any sport. They could figure out any sled. It doesn't really matter what you put them on. But then there's some guys that really, really have to work at it and kind of hone the craft over the years. For you, you definitely understood the mechanics and what you were actually feeling from the sled. So I'm sure there was a level of confidence that came from that. But would you call yourself, if you're looking at your kind of career as a whole, would you call yourself like a naturally talented racer? Are you one of those guys that really had to work at it and and grind to, to get to where you were? I, I, I was natural, uh, you know, mm-hmm. I, I'm not trying to be, uh, be a big shot or nothing, but I, you know, I, I think like you were saying, there, there's, there's a one to five and a five to 10. And I was in that upper end of it all. Uh, and I think the mechanical side of it gave that confidence because I knew a lot of different things about how to make the machine work, not mm-hmm. just fast, but accelerate and run cleanly and, and uh uh you know handling obviously came into the picture it always was there but it got exemplified when we went to independent front ends but uh so but anyhow 
yeah, no, I, I had that talent and, and, uh, I felt like every year I learned another little part to it and added to it. So the confidence level obviously went up and up and up. I, I know you're going to come to the, the day of reckoning of going into Arctic and, and that was mm-hmm. another whole story, but, but I'll, I'll, I'll go back to maybe 77 with, with team frustration and the pivotal year to, to Articat and being recognized by them. I mean, I, I, I knew Articat people in the, in the middle seventies and, and, uh, with disease and things like that. But, um, I had come to fruition in 77, uh, Franny and Donahue's and, and again, all these guys that Hewlings, oh, well, Hewlings now has, a, has got a factory ride, but, um, um, I didn't really think at the time when I, I saw Davy Thompson get hurt at Eagle mm-hmm. River and and uh, Elsner and Colton continued on and and I wasn't sure there wasn't any scuttle as far as I can remember with Jerry Simison and and any of the other guys that Arctic was hey they're they're going to be looking you know unlike Formula One where they uh, you know, this guy, his contract's over and this is up and on. You know, it's a, everybody knows everybody's business and that thing. And, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, I didn't know. And I had no idea that, that Davey may or may not uh, continue on or wasn't going to until it actually happened. I, I raced all through 77, lots of successes, won some uh, Hattin Cup, not Hattin Cup, but uh, Alexandria and, and Ironwood and, and a few other races. So, I was being seen at the time by the Articat race team, as well as Roger Skyme, who was uh, the pivotal guy in the, the whole piece. Um, and and again, I don't I don't know that they're looking at me, but but they are, and and they're looking at me maybe for a little different reason because they're looking to to find somebody to replace Davy, and mm-hmm. uh, and I didn't know that. So you know, uh, as luck would have it, and and all of the things culminated. There were a lot of guys, Spencer, that had every bit as much as talent and maybe even more in some respects that were available guys to drive at that Artie could have looked at and probably maybe did. But um, I, I think that my personality at that time, um, I had a, an incident up in uh, Canada at the Kawartha Cup. I had been running really well and accumulated a bunch of points. Uh, believe it or not, I was actually close enough to to win the Kawartha Cup with using stock class points, and that was unheard of. It was all won by Supermod drivers. Um, but anyhow, uh, long story short, I ended up going out. They called me out for had a pin, went out for a class, and and while the race was going on, they black flagged me. I'm in the lead. And I'm going, you know, what I didn't do it. What now, you know, two, three laps in, I, I, I couldn't have done anything wrong to somebody, but, and I didn't stop. I kept going and going and I was just furious when I stopped, but I was furious in a way that I didn't, you know, go swear at the flag man and the, and the this and that. They said, Jim, you weren't supposed to be in that race. You were eliminated in the round before. We shouldn't have given you a, a clip to go out and blah, blah, blah. And, and I said, mm-hmm. but you did and i was and i and you know anyhow uh, and arctic was standing right there watching all this so i think that the reaction to not being a a a jerk and throwing shit and and uh 
you know, making a big deal out of it went a long ways to to going, we need not only a race driver for Arctic Cat, we need a guy that's going to represent this company. And mm-hmm. that, Spencer, part of, uh, of the other part of the story of being a factory driver versus an independent, that part of representing a company goes in your back pocket and, and that never goes away. It's always on the forefront. Everywhere you go, someone's looking at you. So you have mm-hmm. to be sure that you don't put yourself in a bad way. We know from all kinds of professional sports that these guys get in trouble all the time. But but anyhow, so so here's Artie Cat, you know, that uh, um, looking and willing and 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 taking a, a, a shot out on this this guy out of the city. And and that part of it in itself is another kind of a you know, almost all snow pro drivers came from within their own factories. Arctic, mm-hmm. you know, they were Thief River people. They were, they were for sure, if they weren't, Crooks, Dale, Dale Karmikins, and all these guys were all in and around that area. Same way with Rosso, the, mm-hmm. the Lindblads and all that. They were all from, so to get a, you know, Polaris was went way out on a limb when they did the Hewling, Sorsen, and Bunky deal. They, they were, you know, sure, they were great racers, but they had nothing to do with, with that company or, or ever worked there or ever even rode one of their sleds. So mm-hmm. that was kind of the beginning of, of hiring uh, the talent for the talent's talent and not necessarily because of who you are, your name or your friends or whatever. And I'll go back to the last part of it is that I think Articat, the passion that that company has and all of the people that I don't believe that any of the other companies, Skidoo, Polaris, or whatever, could stand alone and have the kind of following that Articat people have. I mean, they are unbelievable. They they nurtured it. They made all the special clothes and gimmicks and tools and and uh, uh, merchandise. And and Articat was a was the leader in that part of it all, and the world loved it. Um, so. Uh, I think racing for them was as much of being a show uh, on a weekend, win or lose, look good, try hard, talk to the people, you know, when they're hovering around your snowmobile, you don't go in the back of the van, you go out there and you be with these people, the dealers, the the riders and all that, and they loved it. And I loved it. It was, you know, you, you everybody likes notoriety, but you... Uh, that was Arctic Cat, and that was part mm-hmm. of racing for a company that the independent guy never ever knew, and and you didn't really know it until you became part of it. Um, so I'm going on and on, but I, I wanted to <laughs> give you a feeling of of what that part of it was like that maybe someone has never ever told you that. Oh, for sure, and you know we we see it a lot in you know traditional stick and ball sports and stuff like that. You know, there's they'll always use the the phrase he's a he's a good locker room guy and that is really underrated in the world of motorsports because you'll have guys that are super talented like yourself Jim but they may they may be really bad at testing they may be like frankly a pain in the ass to deal with they may be really really hard on equipment and that stuff makes it all the way to the top there's there's budgeting there's public appearance there's marketing there's all this stuff so you know when you're looking at a, a lineup of 10 guys and you say, Hey, this guy's really well-spoken. He's good with the public. He talks to fans and he happens to be fast. Like 
that's that's a no-brainer if you're an OEM. So I'm I'm sure you know for a lot of people it may have seemed kind of weird at the time, but from the story you're telling, it's like yeah, no, that was that was a natural fit for for Team Arctic to sign you. I I believe that's how it started. Now I was a young twenty-ish, twenty-three. I don't remember. You know, um, putting it in perspective at at sixty-eight now, uh, it's easy to <laughs> look back at it all and see that. At that time, I I was grasping it, but um, well, when you come to the end, when you ask about what I what ifs or what would I do different or whatever, we'll get into that part of it uh, a little bit later on. But but anyhow, yeah, it, Articat was a was a a great company to, to to you know to represent all, and I still to this day. I mean, I, I am so proud of that my my affiliation with them and those friends that I've had. Um, I I went through thick and thin with them and and uh, this championship and 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 keeping on the arctic name and the phantom and and nielsen and on and on and on i mean you know they um i i think i more than showed them over the years that that day they called me to uh to come and race for them they got a guy for for life i mean for any of the uh, any of the listeners that didn't make it up to the uh the 60th anniversary of cat last summer up in thief river I mean, even Jim walking around, still a celebrity, still getting asked by a bunch of people to to sign the book and sign the poster and all that kind of stuff. So even after all these years, as you said, still uh, you, you still bleed green in a lot of ways. Pretty proud of it. <laughs> For sure. So, you know, you only spent a couple years with Cat, not from your own doing, but ultimately Arctic Enterprises closes up shop. You know, that's that's how it goes. So they uh unfortunately go bankrupt after the 81 season and you know there's a lot of there's a lot of history and famous stories behind that but i'm kind of curious then you know we talk a little bit in the future ultimately you end up with with uh, nielsen's and that becomes kind of like a second second era in your career but in between kind of hearing the rumblings and that you may not have a ride for the next season because cat themselves is closing up their doors between that and getting that call from ted like what was your plan did you have did you have sleds in your garage that you were going to race were you going to hang it up like what was what was your mindset in that in that era well actually we'll got to go back to the end of 81 i shouldn't say the end it was in uh, uh december of 81 almost the beginning of the season uh um uh, I was racing for Articat still, but we knew that the company was going to go bankrupt. And oh, okay. uh, now uh, that had to stay within us. And uh, the dealers, uh, you know, they didn't want some mass exodus uh, happening, kind of like an inside trading deal. Uh, mm-hmm. so, so we knew this. So I'm pretty much devastated. I'm in my fourth year with Articat and uh, enjoying racing and, you know, like you can't imagine. Um, so I'm pretty crushed to think that this is going to stop. A lot of sorrow that uh, friends, all of these, the Coltons and Thompsons and Zulowskis and all that, that had jobs with the company. Not, I mean, this place was going down. It wasn't like they were mm-hmm. going to move to a different division or another place. The door was going to close. So I, I you know, everybody was pretty, uh, pretty gloomy, uh, knowing that, that that part was. I honestly, I never got a call from Skidoo. I, I, okay. Brad did, I didn't, um, 
I don't know if they ever gave it a second thought or if they thought that that if they had Brad and Jacques, they were going to be fine, and they certainly were. So I don't know if I would have taken that ride or not. I, to be honest with you, at that point, I was pretty hardened Arctic Cat guy. I, I I had just worked for four years to beat that company, uh, you know, Polaris only for a couple because they quit. But um, so I, I don't know, I guess I, but but it happened so fast. So so anyhow, Ted mm-hmm. comes over to me while I'm racing for, for Arctic and uh, at Alex and knocks on the, on the door and say, yeah, can I talk to you for a minute? And he took me off to the side, went over into his trailer. And he said, I, I know Arctic Cat's going bankrupt. And I'm wondering if you would consider racing for me. Well, I'd watched him, you know, I knew who he was. I'd never been to Illinois, or not to his shore, store. The Goodwins were racing for him. I mean, they had a respectable teams. I had, you know, they were racing Articats too, Snow Pros, 80 Snow Pros. Um, but, you know, I told you before, I got so consumed with racing against other factory drivers. I, I always, you know, I remember racing against the Goodwins, but... Um, you know, how close were they and, and, and uh, you know, what kind of a, it, there's no way that it's going to be as good as, as the factory ride. They don't have the dynos and the engine and the clutch and the suspension and all the people. But if, if Brad goes to Skidoo and there is no other openings, um, I, you know, I guess I, this is a free ride. He's going to pay me. We're going to, so then he, he said, well, you think about it. So anyhow, it wasn't long afterwards. Um, he calls me up. He said, "I can buy all of your Articat sleds. Your two, your two sleds, Bobby's two sleds, and Brad's two Scorpions, of which he two mm-hmm. one of them was the World Championship sled." I said, "Well, you can, you know, yeah." Well, it turned out he bought five of them. The one of the six, uh, one of the Articats went to uh, uh, Larry Van Dyke up in Canada. Mm-hmm. So I now I know this guy, and not only does he have the want, but he has the money. And uh, so I, you know, I, well, Jesus, you know, I, 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 I could run my same sled and and uh, refine it and do whatever. It'll last for a couple of years, and maybe we'll end up with a Rotax or whatever. But I'll take these these skidoos and these twin tracks. We're not very reliable, so I thought I might sneak this in yet, and that's that dream started. <laughs> I thought, well, if I can do it soon enough, I can't wait too long because they'll get this developed, and which they did, and, and this history what went on. So I, uh, knowing that it was going to end, and and yes, an Arctic, and finally, and on fast forward, uh, it's over with. And Ted calls mm-hmm. me uh, early in the spring, and he said, Jim, I, uh, I want you to come down to Illinois and look at uh, what I have for you, and we'll try to put up together a deal. I go down there, walk in the door. Here's my race shop, five snowmobiles, two scarps, three Articats, four or five engines on the floor, trailing arms, hoods, seats, pistons. I mean, he bought everything from the Articat race shop, including every the jack stand and the cover. I mean, he had it all. Mm. And I thought, holy shit, you know, this guy is, not, I mean, he's, he's serious. He wants to win. He wants to win Eagle River too. So. Mm-hmm. I said, uh, all right. So we sat down and made the deal, and I said, uh, we'll go for it. So I went down there that, uh, you know, shortly thereafter and began the organization of, of how and what and whatever, and, and the Phantom was born. And the idea to 
to to to keep the legacy of Articat going, uh, not knowing that they were ever going to come back. Uh, uh, a few years later, we ended up buying stock and bought Articat back again, and I was one of the initial investors. So it mm-hmm. um, it had a had a kind of a cool story as it was rolling forward, and and uh, you know the one of your other questions was Polaris involved with uh, with something well. Ted was a you know big Arctic or a snowmobile dealer about uh, Polaris Arctic to uh, Yamaha, and uh, he worked a deal with Polaris Marketing, um, uh, Ed Scummerall, that if he bought I don't know how many snowmobiles he bought, several hundred of them, we get some di- dyno time with um, at Polaris. We're going to put our our Articat engine in the dyno in Rosso. So oh really? <laughs> so here I go with uh the two engines i took them out of the sleds brought them up to jerry shank in the dyno room at polaris and um and here i am arctic ex-arctic guy by by a half a year of bankruptcy (laughs) standing in brooklyn and and burnett and all these guys are are working in the shop around me and and i thought to myself you know you talk about those doors that they said that open up when you're a factory driver and and the mm-hmm. people that you know and and you don't get that as an independent you know i mean so mm-hmm. so anyhow <clears throat> they ran the dyno and they made a pipe for it and and on and on and uh uh you know I, I could go on and on with that story but yes we did and um so so anyhow uh, nielsen was he was he he had a a, a big desire i mean that he, we would stay at night. We would work ideas. We, we took the Goliath idea and, and, and David sat and, uh, you know, looked at the small things and, and what can we do? We know that the twin tracks are, are not very reliable. They would derail just about one or two of them every race. And, and, uh, and, uh, and so, uh, it worked on a little bit further on. And then 19, after 1983, he said, uh, Chester Guitan Duval from Skidoo, the race team manager, he wanted us to switch to twin tracks so, so bad. So Ted finally said, um, I said, you know, Ted, if you can buy a twin track from, from Chester and get a spare motor for it, well, this will be a factory motor. Well, he doesn't know any better. We'll bring that, we'll get that whole package back here and I'll take that second engine and I'll put it in my Phantom sled, build a new chassis, fresh, 1984 water cooled brake, uh, you know. I mean, I I gave uh, 25 laps first time to to go that distance. I I said we're gonna go for broke. We're gonna put this powerhouse in there, and uh, and all that. Well, anyhow, the a long story. He did buy it all. The motor came. I feverishly worked at getting this engine into that chassis, and uh, I worked on the twin track. Uh, you know, probably for two hours out of every eight that I'd work on the, on my single track and uh, little by little, but it was just a pile. Everything was wrong with them twin track, skid frames, everything <laughs> loose. I don't know who made it or how they went about, but it was just, you know, needed to be hand built all over again. I never drove it. I, I, <laughs> I, I put the motor in, we went uh, down to the lake to test it and this new, Rotax. I have never driven one. I mean, it was a rocket ship. It did everything. I said, Ted, this thing is fast. I said, I, if they, unless they did something really, really different, um, 
it, it's going to be fast and, you know, and, I'm, you know, as long as the motor doesn't blow up, it's going to be reliable. I've already got years under my belt with this thing. So that's what we did. And that's how it started. And Chester was furious uh, when he found out we came to the first race and both the machines were there. We called the other one double trouble. And, and, uh, but, uh, but Jimmy, Jimmy, you never drive it. You don't drive it. How come you drive that other one? Well, then I won nine out of 11 features and, and he was just livid at the, at the world's championship. Cause I mean, he could see the writing on the wall that uh, if everything was going right, I, I, you know, it, I was going to be the guy to beat. So, so anyhow, Spencer, that long story condensed up a little bit. Um, that's how that whole segment happened and how I got the, the, the championship sled at the, at the, the, the best motor at the best time with a new chassis and, and a machine that I knew inside and out. And, and, uh, you know, I, I, like I say, I, of all of the things that I wish that I would have been in my career was been more of an athlete. There were many times in a long race that fatigue, you know, your arms get tired, you get winded, you're, you're just exhausted up and in and out of the seat pockets they modernized the champ sled so much they got the the little butt rest and and all of that now we didn't have any of that you had to hold yourself on the sled so so the idea you know of, of driving them i i many times i get that 15 lap race i could go really hard for 10 but those last five or three and and you should never ever recognize that you're not as fast on the last lap as you were in the first ones because the only shortcoming is you and uh, I mean, mm-hmm. sure, the machine can wear out and carbides and whatever, but but I knew inside. So if I was ever to do it, the, the, the good part was, is that in the longest race of my life, that meant the most to me and the world in my life was that world championship, 25 laps long. I started dead last, passed every guy in 13 laps and went on to win the race. So I, I got to eat my... Uh, my pie at the same time I was strong <laughs> and, and I was thinking, doubting in myself that that was going to be my weak link and it turned out to be my strongest. So, You know, we've talked about a little bit of just kind of, you know, some of the major differences between factory programs versus privateer efforts. And, you know, you, you have to wonder, I mean, what's, what could easily get lost in this entire thing is just, would you have gotten to that point of having that kind of sled? Like you just, you lose that level of understanding and that level of development at times at a factory team versus a privateer team. Like by the time you line up on that phantom sled for 84, you know, every single inch of that sled, you know, everything that's gone into the clutching, you know, everything about the motor suspension, you know, everything. So you know how to ride it, you know, where it's going to, where it's going to excel, where you might find some gaps and you can counter those. So it is really interesting just hearing like, yeah, I, I lined up and I was a privateer, but I guarantee you my sled was better because I knew everything about it. And I put all the best stuff in it because I could, because I had the freedom to that the factory might have not had, you know? That, that day when I walked in the race shop for the first time and all of the, the team was there, the, uh, Roger, Wayne Shanson from the clutching department. Roger Gage was the engineer that made the chassis. Larry Davy, Bobby Dermont, uh, Dwayne Graham, uh, mechanics, uh, um, 
uh, you know, Richie Porter from the engine department. I mean, they're all there. So you're looking at uh, 15 guys and, and each one of these have a play in this whole piece, much like an army. You know, the, the guy that drops the bomb on the building, the, the jet had to get fueled and, and worked on and the boat had to get them there. And I mean, it, so it takes a whole, whole bunch to get to that point. Now learning, uh, here's this young 20-year, 20 22-year-old guy coming in the door and they're looking at me like some kind of city slicker and, and uh, you know, he's not from Crookston. He's not from, from, uh, from Grigla. He, he's from White Bear Lake. Well, thank God I wasn't from Minneapolis because that would have, <laughs> it would have been the, 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 I would have never made it because you know, these guys are, they're, they're, uh, they're Northwestern, you know, half of them are Scandinavian something and, and they're stubborn and they, they stay tight to their own. So I had to. Yeah, but, it, but, but it is funny though, you know, this city slicker who's actually from White Bear. Yeah. Like... <laughs> <laughs> so, so I had to learn and how, you know, the first thing you're going to do, Jim, is shut up and listen. <laughs> And don't, you know, you don't tell anybody anything that you know, you're always asking them, you know, what, why, where, what would you do? Um, and, and, and that honestly, Spencer made the difference. Larry Colton and I became very good friends. Larry doesn't talk to anybody. You could go talk mm -hmm. now. You might get to him, Spence, but, but back when he was 30 years old and racing uh, snow pro sleds, Larry, when mom was the word, he knew what he had mm -hmm. and he wasn't about to, so, so, and, and, and Davey had his little things that he shared with me and we worked together with on, um, but the clutch guy and, and, uh, but, but anyhow, so you've got all these different, go up to the dyno cell and you're watching them make the motors and they're, and they're doing this and they're shortening the pipe and they're, and they're length, they cut the center out and they're, you know, you know, compression change. It's like, holy Christ, there's so many things, ignition timing, um, going mm -hmm. on here that I, I, you know, I ran 77 Z's. I, I didn't really know all of this stuff. There's, you know, a lot of guys think they ran a modified shit. You don't know nothing until you, till you're around that kind of uh, development. They're, they're, they're looking for every last power they can. And, and, and then there's good power and there's bad power. And that's another learning curve. But um, so, Anyhow, those those guys and being able to draw from them and uh, not only become their friend, but become part of the team that that they wanted to help me as much as they wanted to make. Well, you know, Elsner is a different kind of guy. He's he's a one in a million. There, there's too many guys in this whole thing that actually like their teammates. Um, I had nothing <laughs> against Bob Elsner at all. I idolized the guy. He was strong. He was determined. He was quiet. He 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 uh, he walked strong with a with a with a long stick. I mean, it, you know, he was a junkyard dog on a chain. You you let that guy go, and he's going to be on you on the last lap. Don't turn around because his skis are going to bump your tunnel. He he's just that kind of a guy. Great guy, super guy. Um, so so I like my teammates. I know that. Uh, Thorson and Bunky and and Hewlings and them that they're, they're that kind of a, of a camaraderie between them. They may have had their fun, but they weren't the same kind of friends that I was to the people at Articat. I know they were. 
So, so anyhow, so I had this wonderful group and as an independent, you only get to know them through a door on the way in and on the way out. I, I mm-hmm. got to eat with them. I slept in the same rooms. I, 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 I had victory on the days and the sorrow and the, and the ass kick in the days when we didn't. And, and, uh, you know, um, uh, that, that part of the, the learning curve with them was, was unbelievable. And then on, on, you know, into the, the white house side of it all, where you've got the administration, the, the Bill Deckers and, and, uh, Roger Skimes and, and, uh, uh, Bill Ness, uh, the money behind the company that would shovel a million dollars into this program. Uh, and I get to know these guys and go break bread with them. And, and, uh, mm-hmm. and Makuni guy and the guy that makes the belts and they'll make me any kind of belt I want. And, uh, you know, Woody's comes, well, let's make these shorts a little shorter, a little longer, a little wider. Yeah, no problem. Zoom and I send you whatever you want. And um, the, the, the connections with it all, that independent guy, he gets the scraps, you know, they, mm-hmm. uh, I, I'm not, no, you know, they were great guys. I wasn't independent. I don't mean it in any kind of derogatory. I mean it in a fact it's that's mm-hmm. the difference between it, what it was and what it, and what made me what it was. I, I know I never would have got to the world championship at Eagle river. You know, I don't know if I even got to the starting line, let alone carrying that flag without, mm-hmm. without the Arctic hat. No way. Mm-hmm. I mean, did you through all these years with, with Nielsen? I mean, I, and you just mentioned all these people you met, you had to have gotten a call to come back. I mean, I know like when cat comes back, their race program is slim to none. I mean, we, I did an episode with Joey Hallstrom and he kind of talks about some of those years of coming back and trying to build a race program because that's still how you market OEMs back then, but they had a shoestring budget. But I mean, whether it's cat or, or BRP or Polaris, like you had to have got calls to come back to a factory team, right? They never went back. That in really? snow pro racing, uh, none of them did. You know, I mm-hmm. I think that uh, the days of uh, Villeneuve um, and and Brad eighty one, eighty two, um, uh, eighty four Zingris. Um, I I would think that Michelle Zingris got he might have gotten paid to to run the sled or whatever, but I I he wasn't the I don't think he lived in Valcourt and, and went to uh, to work on that machine every week. I think he came to the track and drove it. I, I don't know that for a fact, but so no, Articat never went back to that. All the years with with PJ and and uh, all of that, that was all dealer supported mm-hmm. uh, factory efforts. They gave them money and engines and things like that, but but nobody was on a payroll. It wasn't they weren't developing the stuff. And and uh, it, somebody else, Hooper made the motors, and uh, and that's how the I think all of the other teams were. They were all you know Polaris may had had I, I don't even know if they built engines in the in the later 80s or early 90s. I think it all went outside. So so no, I, there was no calls to go back to any factories at that point. Hmm. Um, uh, and you know by after 84. I, they Skidoo hated me. I mean, there was no no way that I was going to uh, to get anything from them. So 
Um, mm-hmm. uh, and, and for all due purpose, Spencer, after I won that race, even in my own heart, I, I you know, everything was fun and, and, uh, and the fire was gone to, to be that, uh, Mm. You know, uh, I, I, it's a win, win, win. Uh, you know, I, mm-hmm. I, I let that kind of flame just go out and, and oval racing go away. I, I did it uh, with Ted a couple races for the next couple of years there with him, but, uh, but that was the end of oval racing. And, and I'm not sorry. I, it was, it was, it's a dangerous sport, you know, it, uh, it's plenty fast, but, um, uh, um, I, I went on to thinking I've got to get a business started and, and do something for myself. I'm 84. I'm trying to think of how old I was. Um, 30, you know, early 30s, maybe 32 or something, 28, 32. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so, you know, I had been living the life, you know, uh, up until that point, um, racing and, and, uh, and, and supporting myself with that. So now I had to come up with a business thing. Do you know who CJ Ramstead? Did you ever meet him? Never got to meet him, but I reference his his cat book on a daily basis. Oh, so I yeah. do know who he is. He, he, he incredible guy, another one of them. Uh, uh, you know, made the sport what it was, and and certainly all aspects of racing. But he was he was quite a snowmobile rider and ambassador and whatever. But um, anyhow, um, um, I think I was going to go with CJ. Um, Talking about the dealership, uh, kind of life after racing. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And start the, and so he he uh, he was instrumental in getting me to start Phantom Performance. So okay. at that time, uh, making some clutch kits and and uh, doing some engine work. And Polaris was was really the new Indy was out the eighty three six hundred Indy eighty four eighty five eighty six six fifty Indies, putting pipes on those and clutch kits by the hundreds. Um, I, I had very few Articats I was working on, but tons and tons of Polaris's and, uh, that's how I made my living, uh, in the early and the, you know, middle eighties on, uh, into the nineties and, uh, with that performance shop stuff. So, um, uh, that brought me in back into Arctic, which, you know, I guess if you, unless you had something else you wanted to go on the speed runs and, and Joey came back into the picture again. Um, in, uh, 1993, mm-hmm. that was the first year Thundercat. Mm-hmm. So he, you know, he, Jimmy said, you know, you've got your, your phantom, uh, performance shop, you're doing fixing boats and selling eliminator boats. And, you know, you could be a dealer for Articat. And of course, then they sent to Bob Austin to, you know, you need to be a dealer and, and uh so i did and and became an arctic dealer in in 93 joey sends me down a couple of thundercats uh that was brand new and oh my god this is going to be great so i started to speed run those set a world record 112 miles an hour blah blah and that wasn't long and then the blacktop thing came about the next year uh, al shimpa brought a uh, uh uh, 800 ZRT up to Brainerd during the nationals uh, with the what we call parade skis. They had the steel skis with the with the bogey wheels uh, bolted through it, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, we just burned and fried a track down to where the lugs were almost gone. So uh, anyhow, I went 114 miles an hour and a quarter of a mile in front of 
uh, 20,000 people that were watching the drag race during the summer. And that went off the hook, you know, oh my gosh, Kadoo was calling. We got to, we got to do this. We got to get there. We got to, we should be racing against each other. And, and uh, which started uh, formal blacktop drag racing, two from Skidoo, two from Polaris, two from Arctic, Yamaha. Uh, mm-hmm. So, so that went on uh, with Joey and, and my, my, my uh, racing in uh, summertime, grass dragging, a little of this, a little of that, speed runs in the wintertime. Um, and I went on with doing that for till 2000 and I sold my business um met a woman that had horses and and uh she had 70 horses and a business over in an andover called bunker park stable and uh, i didn't know that much about horses but i learned all that and ran and managed that business we we were a a, a full-time public riding stable you could ride uh, go for mm-hmm. a trail ride you could come there we would take you on uh hay rides, uh, you know, um, uh, Sadie Hawkins dances inside of our arena. And I did that for 20 years. We just sold it uh, two, two or three years ago to some of our employees. Mm-hmm. And I officially retired at 65. Uh, um, so that's a kind of a little uh, summary, a quick summary of where, where it went from, from <laughs> there to there. Yes, yeah, maybe I jumped a little too fast. <laughs> it's okay it's all part of the story like you in a lot of ways you've hit every single topic we've just jumped around a ton and i have no issue with it whatsoever but like so now i mean again we'll just kind of jump past the fact that you're just writing off all this you know all these speed runs like they're no big deal yeah i did this and then i did that and it was this whatever we're just gonna skate past that then jim since you don't seem to care but i'm curious then i mean you retired a couple of years ago, quote unquote retired. I don't think guys like you ever truly retire. You're probably always tinkering with something or or have some crazy hobby that's taken over your life. What have you been up to then since then? Like what do you what occupies the day of Jim Dimmerman these days? Well, you'll see a project shortly. I'll release it on Facebook. I have put some teasers out. Um, long story short, um, uh, Articat had uh, built a, the Thundercat sled, the three-cylinder, two-stroke, up and to and through 2002. In about mm-hmm. 2000, the company was looking at the next wave of it. They've been doing it since 93. So, you know, are we going to continue, build a bigger motor and go on with this Thundercat thing, or are we going to do something new? And according to Joey, the... the uh, uh, marketing and engineering and all the people were sitting in a room. Uh, are, they had already had an 1100 cc three-cylinder Thundercat motor built, a couple of them, for as prototypes mm-hmm. to to be the next gen of Thunder. And uh, and they also had welded together some uh, F7, what we call F7 uh, sled engines. And, and made a uh, twin cylinder lay down, turned the cylinder around, and the exhaust port came out the front and the blah, blah, blah. So in the meeting, you know, which way do you want to go? And they're going, well, we think that we could run a little further with the F7 and, uh, and take it in, you know, more models and on and on, new, lighter, blah, 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 change the, change the way we're riding a little bit and, and move there. Down went the gavel. The, the uh, two uh, 1100 engines 
went off to the side and and they moved forward and and a couple of, a year or two years later I, I had heard about it i don't joey and i somebody somewhere at all and and i knew that motor was in the motor room so i said to roger skyne once i said roger i said you know uh i know that it's there I, you know it's never been developed they they never put a pipe on it they never they never absolutely had any tie to even light a fire in the engine it was just a a uh, motor and ignition system no intake no exhaust mm -hmm. i said roger i said I, I i want that motor i want to build a sled to go for the ride with the champs and uh, i'll i'll uh, i'll build something cool i don't know yet what it'll be but but i'll make it something that uh, you'll be proud of and uh fine so he gave me the motor so i had that motor since about 2000 and i don't know 15 or so and and then the wheels started what am i I'm like well and if you go to ride with the champs you got to be able to to go 68 miles and then you get gas mm -hmm. and so it had to have five inches of ride <laughs> yep. it had 10 gallons of gas it's got to look cool well how do you make a race sled look cool i had a 76 z hood or, or 76 snow pro and, and and it was so high up off the ground. It looked terrible. I literally could drop <laughs> it away. One day, um, uh, somebody called me and said, did you know that uh, that Marchbank bought uh, the Decker sold out and Marchbank owns the Eagle River track now? Really? So I'm Craig. I said, hey, I said, are there any aspirations you're going to let let us go back out onto that racetrack? We used to go out there with the ride with the champs. You'd bring the people out for the ride, take a couple laps around the track, and then head on off to Monaco or whatever. And he goes, hell yeah. He said, we might even take it further than that, actually make a, a ride part of that, of the session. Son of a mm. bitch. All right. <laughs> oh, I took this sled that I had worked on for two years to be a trail sled through the gas tank, the seat, the suspension, slammed this thing down to the ground, made a new skid frame, lowered it all and and uh, proceeded to put 80 snow pro glass on it and make it look like a retro mod of yesteryear 1980 Arctic Cat snow pro and and that has gone through lots of trend i mean the the, the hood there's three thousand dollars worth of glass work in the hood and, <laughs> you know three thousand dollars worth of pipes to get three pipes made for it it's it's a it's an expensive and a long powder coating, different colors, this scheme. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, so what have I been doing, uh, Spencer? That, <laughs> that wasn't a day and night thing. I mean, I, I ride horses. We got a pool in our backyard. I, I live my life with my wife, but um, by all the while, every, every day, every couple out in the shop and a little of this, little of that, getting ready, scheming up the, the next thing. And, waiting for a few parts to get done. And, and uh, so I put this motor in and you'll see um, shortly, uh, I, I, I'm waiting for one more logo that gets uh, a little tab that gets welded on the pipe, believe it or not, decals mm -hmm. are all done um, and on. Um, I, I think you'll be pretty impressed when you see it, that it's, uh, it, uh, it was meant to be like a ghost of, of yesteryear of 1980 with an 1100 mm -hmm. three-cylinder an oval racing sled that has never happened. And I'm going to take Eagle River. I'm going to lap it a couple of laps as fast as I feel comfortable. 
Um, it will be ungodly fast and over 200 horsepower. <laughs> um, uh, it, it, you know, it, it's one of them things that I guess if I was going to leave a legacy behind of something that I did that was a little, a little off the wall, that that this is it. I won't do build another one. It takes too long, and um, uh, this 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 was the the uh, the grand poopa as far as I'm concerned. But anyhow, so so yes, that's my. Uh, I have three kids, all married with kids of their own um good jobs and good kids and no drugs and and uh, things that parents you know would be you know just jumping up and down for so i i my health has been good i i can't uh, can't complain i we articat meets we have our reunion we've had five reunions uh, mm-hmm. uh with uh with all with the main players of it all and i won't get into that part of it but but I look forward to that a couple uh, days every year, and and we reminisce about you know over fishing, golf, um, sightseeing, uh, river cruise. I mean, we've done a little bit of everything, and and uh, that is great. I I don't know that there are any other factory teams that uh, have ever done this. I know there's more and more. I know Mercury met at uh, uh, over in uh, Eagle River with some of the guys yep. over there, um, but. Mm-hmm. But I've been doing this for, you know, we started it a long time ago. I think they're probably jumping on the fact because we do it. And that's great. I'm glad they do. Don't get me wrong. Um, but but in any case, just to show you the 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 uh, the depth and the and the friendship that went on at Articat the, uh, amongst the team itself, that no other, you know, nobody else has tried to go through that much trouble to get the boys together. Um especially year after year. So, so that's another big thing in my, my, uh, my, uh, world of stuff to do. Um, I don't fish, I don't hunt anymore. I don't snowmobile anymore. Um, I, I did ride, uh, one of my last rides 10 years ago, one of the guys I was riding with got killed, uh, driving crazy and drunk and, and, uh, you know, so I had some bad feelings about that, put that sled away. And uh, and uh, idea away, and it's just it's uh, it was a little too crazy out there for me. I, all the years I I raced at 100 miles an hour, and I'd be telling I'm going to go out on a trail and have somebody peel me. So so I mm-hmm. you know, and it's cold, and my hands are cold, and my I wear glasses, and they're a pain in the ass, and so you know a lot of lot of dumb things. I have ridden modern day sleds and heated seats, and enjoy the the uh, technical stuff that has come with the machines. I follow it closely. Um, I know a lot of the guys that are building it, making and designing it. We still keep in touch. I had a phone call with uh, Greg Spaulding uh, last week. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, Brad Hewlings and I are good friends. He's going to, he is going to help me uh, run this 1100 engine and, and get it calibrated <laughs> on the dyno. So nice, you know, things like that are, are all in the wheeling works. But uh, so I'm not just sitting, you know, up at the local tavern getting bombed. You know, I, I got plenty to do. <laughs> uh, I'm frankly, I'm surprised you're not going to be like, like with, with all the talk of, of what this slide is going to look like when it finally hits the ice at Eagle River. Like, you know, I go to the vintage shows and there's guys that have their like, fully restored super brutes and they like don't even want you breathing on them you know 
but you're actually going to put this thing after all these hours and all this time, you're going to rip this thing on the ice. I'd be, <laughs> I'd, I'd like put it behind bulletproof glass. I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even let anybody see it, but you're going to ride it. That's, that's insane. I, I think that, you know, on the scale of one to 10, it's an eight and uh, two more points are going to come with the laps. They might be at 10 miles an hour. <laughs> but and they might be at 110 miles an hour. I, I'd love to take it over. I never went 100 on Eagle River track. I think I went about 96, and I'd love mm -hmm. to break that speed once. And uh, so, but anyhow, yeah, no, I'm gonna. I want to drive it, and I, I'm still in enough health. I, I, you know, I mean, obviously, I've put on 30 pounds since I was in my you know racing weight. But um, I'll, I'll hope to get it around the track, and then I'll probably let my son drive it in a uh, a speed run i'm guessing this will go it's it's not in any shape of super mod record holder i mean it probably go 125 mm -hmm. 130 miles an hour and a thousand feet um you know that class with 1100 engine would be 150 or better so so it's not mm -hmm. going to be a winner but it's going to be cool <laughs> i'll uh, i'll throw one last question at you then jim uh one that i didn't even prep you for but I mean, you said you don't really ride a ton, but you still keep up with this with the sport of snowmobiling in general. Do you still watch any racing? Like, do you have any do you have any drivers that you that you watch these days, or are you still kind of disconnected? I watch Eagle River. I go to Mexico mm -hmm. for the winter time, and uh, gotcha. I sit in my room on January eighteenth, sixteenth, whatever day it is, and uh, I'll watch some of the qualifying. Uh, sometimes a uh, Friday Night Thunder. Um, but I'll go and watch the Eagle River race I have for just about every year. Um, and that's the only race I watch. I Sometimes you catch a, a YouTube of this or that from Eganville or wherever. But uh, mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I've watched Blaine and uh, and uh, Gunner and and uh, the, the days of uh, uh, um, Chartier with uh, Mikey Houle stuff. I I talk to Dermont and those you know once a year, so I watch a little bit of it yet, but only uh, I'm not a snowcross guy. I just never was. Mm -hmm. Extremely talented, athletic, blah blah blah, but it's just not fast enough for me. So, um, <laughs> uh, so so yes, I'm still there, still involved. I you know I I try to keep the pulse. I watch the champ. I. I, I, you know, I've made an opinion about champ class that I think that this is way too long now that they haven't made, it needs to be significantly faster. I, I believe mm -hmm. they need 600, 700, 850 engines. They need to have 200 horsepower snowmobiles and, uh, and make these things into rocket ships. They're, they're not fast enough now to be what I call exhilarating. I, I, I think, uh, uh, I, you know, you watch Formula One, you watch uh, uh, MotoGP, 200 mile an hour motorcycle side by side, you know, bumping knees and and uh, the Isle of Man. And you take the premier. I went to uh, to uh, uh, Fargo and watched the World of Outlaw Sprint Cars with shots and sweet and Macedo. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, holy Christ, these guys are on the edge way 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 farther than formula champ i i believe and i think it needs to be 200 horsepower and 300 pounds it's got to be just way out there so that it is absolutely crazy to watch so so what you're saying is they should have uh 
like old 2000s triples in 1980s chassis. Oh, well, not, not necessarily. <laughs> it could be a brand brand new 850 ski do two stroke. I'm not against the idea of taking a new motor. If that's what, what the factories think will make it, uh, no, no, we're not going to bring these old motors. We need a new motor. I'm all for brand new 8, 850, 860, Articat, twin, whatever pipes i mean full shooters not not some one single pipe with a with a you know unleaded gas and i'm talking about making it a racelet just like formula one just like moto gp they don't there's no brakes on that i mean that don't mean brakes there's you know very little it's a thousand cc's and you let her rip um I, that's what i want i want to see a big new motors <laughs> well We'll leave it at that for you, Jim. That can be your your last words to my listeners is we need bigger motors in, in old racing. Yep. <laughs> oh, awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Jim. I really uh, I really appreciate the time, the opportunity to chat with you. It's definitely like I said early on, you got a you got a really cool story. And, you know, one of the coolest points is that you, you still remember all this stuff in in great detail. And that's that's a big part of my podcast is the stories that get lost over the years when people forget. So it is really cool that, you know, it's still fresh in your mind and, and that you're able to share it with us. So I really appreciate it. You're welcome, Spencer. I, I hope that, uh, you know, there's a few things that somebody grabbed out of it all that, that got a chuckle. So that's fun. <laughs> uh, no doubt. No doubt. Well, thanks again, Jim. I appreciate it. Okay. See ya. Jim Dimmerman on the Carbide Podcast. What an awesome guy. His speed on the track may only be rivaled by his personality. You can see why he's still a fan favorite even decades after hanging up the boots. For anyone interested, because I know you are, Jim has since unveiled that custom race sled, and it's absolutely beautiful. There's a clip of it on the Carbide Facebook and Instagram page. Jim also has a detailed breakdown on his own Facebook. Thanks again to Jim for the time, of course. As I mentioned in the intro, Jim's memory is impeccable when it comes to this stuff, so it made for an awesome discussion. Hats off to all you listeners for all of your support. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And as always, take care.